This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode because we've got one of our favorite guests back. After a little bit of a break, there was a lot going on, reporting season, COVID, but Julia Lee is back with us again. Great to be back and chatting to you guys. Thanks for having me. Bit of a quiet period there as markets went crazy. I think the last time we spoke to you, Julia, correct me if I'm wrong, was just as COVID was picking up over in Europe and coming very slowly across to Australia. But since then, a lot has happened in markets. So maybe we'll start with COVID. And maybe if you can just talk us through to kick things off, any major lessons that you've picked up from the COVID crash, that sort of fastest drop that we saw over in March, and then the fastest correction that we've seen as well? Sure. I think the the speed of the correction and the recovery has been a surprise because traditionally when we do see big market crashes or corrections, they do tend to play out over time. But this one was a very quick one. And I think it really highlights that at the moment, the market is pricing in things very quickly. I guess just having a look at the market at the moment, one of the most frequent questions I'm getting is, Are we going to see another crash? And I'm just amazed at the number of people that are still in cash waiting for another crash. And in my mind, I look at the market through three different filters, the macro filter, the micro filter or earnings, and then also in terms of timing. And I suppose when I look through the macro filter at the moment, things are looking good for risk assets like the share market or even not so bad for property. In fact, property prices in the US have been rising. And that's because for me, when you see a large amount of stimulus coming through, so governments and central banks around the globe pumping in money to the economy, that tends to be good news for the share market. And it certainly has been good news for the share market. We've seen unprecedented amounts of stimulus and money hitting economies. And here in Australia, it's been very unusual where we've seen the support coming in 
even ahead of the event. Mm. So before bankruptcies started to peak and happen, we've already seen stimulus like JobKeeper, JobSeeker coming through, as well as some of those incentives to help small businesses. So look, it's an unusual event, but for me, I'm looking at more the seeds of the next boom having been sown rather than the next crash. And any corrections here for me are an opportunity to buy in and enter the stock market at our cheaper levels. So Julia, does that mean that your trigger point for getting out of the market again will be if that government stimulus dries up? I mean, there's a bill trying to pass through Congress at the moment. Correct me if I'm wrong, Alec, you're much more across this than I am. But if this stimulus that's coming through governments at the moment isn't to continue, is that more of a warning signal? And until then, sort of ride the market? That would be a big warning signal because it is stimulus at the moment that's helping to support the market. I have no doubt about that. Um, I guess a larger view is that markets go through cycles. And if you have a look at the business cycle where there's an expansion in money supply and then a contraction in money supply, you'd have to say at the moment we're seeing an expansion in money supply, which means we're at the part of the up cycle. The risks come when we start to see a contraction in money supply growth, that things become a lot more difficult in terms of investing in the market. So definitely watching that business cycle, which at the moment is all about the expanding money supply, which is great news for risk assets like the share market and to a certain extent, even for things like property. So, Julia, we are now living in a world where COVID seems to be a I guess it's a, a reality for at least the medium term. It doesn't It doesn't really seem to be going anywhere. Obviously, Victoria is wearing the brunt of it. But I guess globally, until we have a vaccine, we're not really going to see business as usual return. When you think about things like a traditional business cycle and you know traditional market cycles, does COVID change your thinking about any of those sort of more traditional analytical tools? How are you adjusting your thinking in light of this sort of structural COVID reality that we're living through? I think one of the things that you have to do well as an investor is have a great imagination because really you're trying to visualise what's going to happen in the future, what company earnings are going to look like, what the business is going to look like, what management teams are going to do. And I think the COVID-19 experiences really highlighted that you know, the share market is about the future. To give you an example, last month was reporting season, August, and the two best performing stocks, which surprised in terms of earnings, were actually two stocks which are hit hard by COVID-19. One's a travel stock called Corporate Travel, which looks at travel services to the corporate sector. And that stock was up by 83% in that one month. And the second best performing in the ASX 200 in August 2020 was IDP Education, which looks at student placement for international students, as well as English testing. Another area that's been hit hard by COVID-19 because of the travel restrictions into Australia, as well as uh, the ability to be on campus at these universities now. And that stock was up 50% for the month. And that really demonstrates that, you know, the market is looking through the current situation. And as always, the market prices in the future, so it is pricing in what things are going to look like in 12 to 18 months' time. I almost try to imagine myself being in the future, so being in 2025 and looking back on this COVID-19 experience and the lockdown. I'm wondering what I wish I would have done as an investor. 
And to me, having that perspective helps me to make decisions now when you're in the midst of the worst economic conditions since the Great Depression to get a clearer idea on what the future might look like. Because when you're in the middle of lockdown and you can't go anywhere and COVID-19 is spreading, it's very easy to become extremely pessimistic about the world. But for me, I'm looking at, you know, the next 12 to 18 months, what are the key catalysts? And there are a number of phase three vaccine trials now going on. So really, it does look like there's a strong probability that there'll be a vaccine. And then I have to ask myself, well, would a vaccine be a positive or a negative for the markets? And for me, it would be a a positive for the markets. It would be crazy if a vaccine was a negative for the market. (laughs) Something that has gone incredibly wrong during this period in terms of pricing assets if leaving COVID is a net negative. I can see why it could be if we did see stimulus being wound back too quickly. So I think always coming out of a, a big economic event, the risk is that the support is taken away before the economy can stand on its own two feet. So I guess if there is a vaccine and governments are suddenly like, oh, well, everything's okay, so we won't offer support anymore, I think that would be a problem. But I think governments and central banks have been quite clear that they're willing to support the economy at this stage. And we've seen a big move by the Federal Reserve having a more flexible inflation target, which means, you know, they're not going to be in a huge hurry to raise interest rates, even if inflation does start to get to 2% or even a little bit higher than that. So, Julia, I like the idea of putting yourself in 2025 and Mm. thinking back. I think, you know, we're all about long-term investing here at Equity Mates, and it's very easy to get caught up in the the day-to-day noise, especially when there's so much going on with the Fed printing and COVID and everything going on. If you put yourself in 2025 and you think about this period that we're going through and some of the trends that are emerging or perhaps accelerating because of COVID, what are you seeing or what are you thinking about as some of the more permanent structural changes last beyond COVID and into 2025 that you're factoring in in your investing theses? COVID has definitely seen the acceleration of trends, especially towards technology. So um, one of the areas I, I am looking at is the consumption of data centres, how we connect to those data centres. So these are stocks like NextDC, which are data centres, or Megaport. And Megaport is, I guess, software user networks where instead of having to have the hardware to um, be able to connect to multiple data centers, you can use this software to not connect to just one, but as many data centers as you like. I think there's over 200 data centers that you can connect to. And not only can you transfer data from, I guess, your company to the data center, but you can also transfer data center to data center. So as we move towards the cloud, we're going to need all of these type of services. So I, I see that as a big engine of growth. And I guess I see it as a traditional utility. So the old fashioned Telstra's of the world, these are the new and upcoming Telstra's of the world, which will enable us to communicate. So Julia, let's move to reporting season, because obviously there are a number of companies that came out and smashed expectations, and then a number that have sort of licking their wounds. Were there any major surprises from reporting season that came about because of COVID? There's always surprises. I think the big one was a lot of the retailers, the bricks and mortar retailers, which we know have been struggling because a lot of the stores have been closed or 
there hasn't been as much foot traffic, we actually saw a quite strong outperformance coming through. I mean, mm. Premier, Premier Investments, which owns Smiggles, Peter Alexander, is an example of that. And that's because some of these retailers haven't had to pay rent and they haven't had to pay wages. So salary has been supported or covered by, in a large extent, by JobKeeper and then they haven't had to pay rent. So as long as they had a way to do online sales, actually, you know, they're seeing some of the best profits that they have ever seen and are forecasting the best profits. So when you have a company and you strip out the two biggest expenses, which are usually things like salary and wages and rent, uh, you know, it's a, it's <laughs> a pretty right. good environment. The question I always ask with stocks like this that are benefiting from the COVID-19 situation is, is this something that's temporary or is it forever? And if it's temporary, I try and use this time to find a way to get out of the stock because these conditions won't last and the outlook will get less rosy down the track once these conditions pass. But if the conditions are forever, for example, our acceleration in the consumption of data that's likely to stick around or our online shopping, which is likely to continue, then I will back those companies. So a key question I always ask when I'm investing and there's been either a a very negative or a very positive impact on the company is is it a temporary event or is it forever? Because I don't want to price in forever based on a temporary event. So, Julia, we want to start with the positives of reporting season and then we'll get to maybe some of the less positives or some of the negatives. So if we start with some of the positives, what were some of the really pleasing results and really pleasing companies that you saw report during the reporting season, be it you know actual results or sort of momentum that they're building in their business? Sure. Well, first of all, I guess um, reporting season as a whole was an unusual one because there was a whole bunch of companies that still weren't providing an outlook statement. So companies are still saying that it's very difficult to forecast what their profitability or revenue is going to be like given the COVID-19 situation. So some companies haven't given guidance at all. I have a lot more confidence in those companies that have given guidance because, you know, they get a bit more visibility into their business. So it's likely, I think, that they will outperform. But I guess having a, a look across the market, and we actually saw companies that haven't been doing so well, or you would think that would have been impacted negatively by COVID-19, doing extremely well in terms of share price performance. So corporate travel up 83%, IDP education up by 50%. We saw Reliance Worldwide up by 42%. We saw uh, G8 education up by 28%, Flight Centre up by 25%. So what we actually thought would happen in terms of share price performance has actually been, I guess, an artificial environment that's been created because of the amount of stimulus coming through that's helped to support some of these companies under pressure. So it's been an unusual reporting season. Generally, I use reporting season to try and figure out which companies are going to outperform over the next six to 12 months. But in this case, a lot of the impacts from the rise in share price have been due to temporary factors rather than permanent ones. So I really have to, I've really had to go through and sift through reporting season. Having said that, our fund had a really good August. Um, we were up more than 9% in the month of August. So great to see some of the stocks in our portfolio plugging along, if I can give Berman Investor a bit of a plug. <laughs> and so does this mean you've been less active 
in terms of trading than you would have been previously during reporting season? The fund is quite active. We're a concentrated portfolio of 15 to 25 stocks. So usually during reporting season, we do end up picking up some stocks and dropping some stocks as well. So, I mean, we'll get to the buy now, pay later space in a second, I guess. Uh, But one of the stocks we held during August was Afterpay. But on the 1st of September, we sold it. Um, That was good timing. But I guess that was as a consequence, just being very aware that that space was getting very crowded. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. It's getting hot, yeah. And so what about some of the poorer performers that had have come out of COVID? Were there any sort of surprises there? Because to your point just then, you know, some companies that you would expect to perform poorly actually did the opposite. Were there any yeah. that actually came out worse off? That's a good question. Well, I guess if we have a look at Australia, we are very reliant on China for our exports. So China had both a positive and a negative impact. Uh, The negative impact came from Whitehaven Coal was down by 33% during the month. We've seen China increasing, I guess, either tariffs on Australian goods or looking at investigations into some of our exports into China. So Treasury Wine Estates was down 14%. China's instigated two investigations Mm. into Australian exports of wine into China. So that's been a negative. And then the other thing is A2 milk. We've been hearing that because of COVID-19 and the inability to travel and some logistics and parcel routes being impacted, that the traditional Daegu model where people come here and I guess buy baby formula or vitamins and send them to China, that that's been impacted negatively. So A2 milk, which has been a bit of a darling of the market for the last 10 years, are down 12% for the month and Blackmore's down by 10%. So China on one hand having a very good impact on iron ore stocks because iron ore prices are above 100 US a tonne, but a negative impact in some areas like wine as well as uh, baby infant formula and also vitamins. Julia, we've also spoken with you previously about gold on a number of our episodes. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how you have seen gold perform throughout this period and where that's kind of sitting in your sort of thesis and and portfolio. I like gold for this COVID-19 period. 
And I like gold because of the amount of stimulus and money printing that's happening around the globe and is likely to continue happening around the globe. I think the amount of stimulus that we're seeing at the moment really does dwarf the amounts that we saw during the global financial crisis. And to give you an idea, during the global financial crisis, as we were coming out of the global financial crisis, gold prices were up 24% in 2009. They were up 30% in 2010. They were up 10% in 2011 and they were up 7% in 2012. So I think this period is a good time for gold, but it does remain quite volatile. So I do use timing tools. We still hold one gold stock in our portfolio. That's Northern Star, but we sold Evolution Mining when we did see gold prices starting to pull back. But I have to admit I had another look at gold today because it looks like that correction could be over. And for me, it's really about using those timing tools. Otherwise, holding gold stocks in the portfolio can get quite painful because it's not unusual to have uh, the gold stocks in your portfolio up 6 or 7% for no reason or down 6 or 7% for no reason a day. So it is a very volatile investment. We don't hold more than 7% of the portfolio in gold at a single time. And we ramp up our positions and decrease our positions based on technicals in gold at the moment. So Julia, 7% seems like a specific number. It's obviously a specific number, but it feels like it's, it's, it feels like there's some logic behind it. It's not, you know, like an arbitrary 5 or 10 or something. Why 7%? We generally hold 15 to 25 stocks in our portfolio. So 100% divided by sort of 15, you know, 7% is a, a large amount. At the moment, it's much less than that. It's more like 2 to 3%, but a maximum of 7% given the volatility of gold. What happens is that when gold prices run, all the gold stocks tend to run at the same time. So the outlook for gold looks better. The earnings for gold companies look better at the same time. The technicals for gold look better at the same time. So if I'm looking at the market and looking at the best potential investments, I might get you know four or five gold companies coming up. And if I invest in all of them, then I'm overweight an extremely small sector, which is extremely volatile. So generally, as a rule of thumb, I try not to really exceed 7 to 8% in a single stock position in the portfolio. So I try not to hold one gold stock to that amount, but I guess a mini portfolio of gold stocks to that maximum amount. So at the moment, I'm at about 2%, but as I get more positive on the shorter term outlook for gold, I can ramp that up to about 7%, but not just as one company, but probably three or four. Fair enough. You mentioned buy now, pay later and talking about someone being overweight, a particular sector or a particular stock, Bryce is currently 95% of his portfolio is allocated to buy now, pay later. Not so, true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, How are you feeling at the moment, Bryce? What's your September been like? Are your stress levels okay? Funny you said, I, I actually sold 50% of my afterpay holdings about four weeks ago when it was in its sort of higher mid 80s i think 82 or whatever it was but yeah look it is what it is and uh we'll let it play out but i can see it hitting 100 there's just so much chat in our group and just the general community of people just pouring their cash into this i I don't know i'd like to hear your thoughts on it julia 
So I love the Afterpay story. I mean, to me, Afterpay demonstrates so many elements of behavioral economics, which I really enjoy. And for me, Afterpay is built around this premise of the pain of paying. The more painful it is to pay for something, the less likely you are to spend money, which is why, you know, if you were to pay for everything during a month with cash, you'd end up saving money because spending cash is very painful compared to buying things through a credit card, which is less painful, especially tap and go, which is very fast. Or some websites now, once they have your payment details, once you press buy, you don't even have to enter your payment details. Afterpay takes that a step further and divides it into four payments because it's less painful to pay for a quarter of something or think about paying for a quarter of something than 100% of something. So it's been very successful built around that premise. But what we have seen is that a huge amount of retail investors have come to the share market for the first time. And I think this is a fantastic thing. But when you're looking at investing for the first time, or even if you've been investing for a while, one of the hardest things to work out is what to buy. And there's been a number of studies done on what people tend to do when there's choice overload, when there's too many choices out there. And that's certainly usually the case when it comes to investing, when there's so many choices out there, you know, how do you make a decision? The studies have found that people tend to do one of three things. One, they just buy everything. And I guess you can equate that to an exchange trader fund where you can pretty much buy the whole market in uh, one stock transaction. Or secondly, they do nothing. They get paralysis. And there was a study that was done with uh, 401ks or superannuation over in the US. And they found that for every 10 extra choices you gave someone for superannuation, so every 10 investment choices, that the participation reduced by about 2.5% from memory. And then the other thing that people tend to do is they do what they're familiar with. They do whatever's caught their attention. So if they've read about something in the paper or they've seen something on TV or their friend has mentioned something, then they do that. And that's where stock tips from friends come in or barbecues where you're talking about different stocks come in and I guess uh, relying on some of the brands that you know and trust. And certainly a lot of millennials know about Afterpay and it's been growing. I guess as things get popular, you get this herding issue. So I guess herding is around um, people becoming positive on the same thing at the same time and a bubble forming. And I think it's quite interesting because there certainly seems to have been a herding impact in terms of the buy now, pay later space. And for me as an investor, I'm both positive and negative on herding. For me, uh, I get really excited by the herding effect because it means that stock prices go up really quickly, very fast. But on the flip side, I get very nervous about the herding effect because I know that most bubbles, they burst and they burst painfully. So for me, when I know that I'm in the middle of a bubble, or I think I'm in the middle of the bubble, as soon as I think that bubble's over, I get out very quickly. So I try to be one of the very first people to the exit points. For me, the catalyst came from that PayPal announcement that in the last quarter of 2020, that PayPal over in the US will be offering payments in four installments to their members. And PayPal's customer base is, I don't know, massive, bigger than Afterpay's. <laughs> um, 
or Zip Money or Sezzles or any of those type of companies. So I thought, well, that's the initial bursting of the bubbles. That was the signal for me to get out. And look, I've seen the impact that competition has on different sectors many times before. The the thing that I always refer to is Telstra. Telstra used to be a monopoly. And then when the market opened up and you had Focus and Vodafone and TPG coming into the market, well, you know, what does increasing in competition do to the biggest player? And the answer is that, you know, it's the biggest player that has the most to lose in terms of market share and growth. So the biggest player in terms of the buy now, pay later space that we know of is Afterpay. And so it has the most to lose in terms of potential growth down the track. So the market's just factoring that in. I think this space will continue to grow and maybe after pay shares will get to $100. But I think for the time being, the market's just re-evaluating to see the impact that eBay has, whether it's going to be a bit of a flop like uh, Amazon has been on the retail space here in Australia, where it hasn't had the huge impact that we were expecting it to have or whether we do see PayPal really eating into the potential growth of Afterpay and the buy now, pay later space. Yeah, fascinating stock. I mean, the $100 comment was probably my bold prediction for 2020. So. Yeah, see that $100 <laughs> comment, you could be absolutely right and I could absolutely be right. And that's the fascinating thing about the share market yeah. because you can still be right and lose money because when you make predictions, it's important to give a time frame. Mm, mm. So the $100 comment, well, is after pay going to or is it going to get there in 10 months? <laughs> I mean, there was a moment uh, only a matter of, you know, eight weeks ago where it looked like it was going to hit $100 very, very soon. But, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's one of those stocks that has played out in the psyche of many investors for a long time. It's just fascinating to watch really. I'm 50% in now, Ren, so my portfolio has gone from 95% exposure to whatever the maths is on that. <laughs> and you got pretty close to 100 bucks, price. You got as high as $95.97. There you go. And then PayPal came. <laughs> so this could be an opportunity to get in cheap because obviously the market for buy now, pay later is expanding. But the big question is now whether you see, you know, other payment providers jumping into the space. Yeah, well, we saw recently that NAB launched a credit card, interest-free credit card, I think, to start trying to compete with these buy now, pay later companies. Obviously, there's a few strings attached with monthly fees and whatnot that if you do the maths, it doesn't really make sense, but they're certainly now coming to this market as well to try and compete. So if the banks start playing as well, then that sort of growth story is um, impacted. Can I ask you guys a, a bit of a personal question? Yeah, sure. Do, do you have credit cards? Yes. I do, but I don't really use it. Yeah, I just same. have it. Yeah. So it's interesting because in my office, there's a lot of millennials sort of in their early 20s. And I asked that question to all the millennials in the office and they said, no, we don't have credit cards. We don't believe in credit cards. Our generation just doesn't have credit cards. And that's really why I think the buy now, pay later space mm-hmm. has taken off millennials one is access to a credit card whether they have a credit history but secondly it's also I think a shift in terms of thinking when it comes to debt and credit that they have been quite conservative in their thinking and they see afterpay more as a budgeting tool rather than a credit card 
Yeah, it is interesting because, yeah, I mean, credit cards have always had a stigma around how painful they can be if mismanaged. And it's always, you know, you're told don't ever get a credit card. But I think, though, the mentality of buying things when you don't necessarily have the money to do it and still paying it off over a period of time, that's where I find the crossover interesting between credit cards and buy now, pay later, because... Um, I don't know what the default rates are, but it's still that principle of buying beyond your means in some instances. It's just the buy now, pay later space have managed to sort of make it sexy, I guess, and not as scary as having a credit card with interest repayments and all that sort of stuff. So fascinating. Absolutely. And look, I think the, the value of the buy now, pay later space is in the data that they collect. Yeah. I would love to have access to that data. <laughs> Find out what everyone's buying, what's popular trends, just as they're emerging. So, Julia, we've covered a few different topics. People are used to hearing your voice for our Mastermind episodes where we each pitch a stock. And for people waiting to hear the stock pitch, we won't be this episode. We're just touching base with Julia and catching up, but it will be coming back. But we are excited to talk some individual stocks and in particular to hear some stocks that are on your watch list or at least that you're looking at at the moment for Berman. So I guess maybe if we start general, what stocks are catching your eye at the moment? So I'll run you through our two biggest positions. One is Chatterhall Wales and the other is Mesoblast. I'll start off with Mesoblast because it's been a pretty dramatic six weeks for me. It's one of the largest holdings in our portfolio. And at one stage, we did see Mesoblast shares absolutely plummeting. Just looking back on, oh yeah, down to thirty six percent. And um, in June, we saw the shares down twenty percent in a week, which was pretty big. But we're <laughs> we're back up in the portfolio. So with Mesoblast, this is a, a biotech company that's been working on trying to use stem cells to treat certain conditions. So they're in phase three for things like lower back pain, heart failure, things that are a massive addressable market. And the big catalyst for Mesoblast is that the Food and Drug Administration over in the US, which allows drugs to be approved and then sold in the US, set a date of 30th of September for the approval of one of their products, which is Remy Stem Cell L for sale in the US to treat acute graft versus host disease in children. And the thing with acute graft versus host in under 12s is that there is no treatment at the moment. So it, it's pretty tragic if you've gone through chemotherapy or bone marrow transplant and then you get acute graft versus host and there's no treatment. So um, I think it's an exciting area. They're already selling the product under the brand of Temcel in Japan and it's a major milestone in the US to have MSC or stem cells being used and approved to treat a, a condition, so a huge milestone. So the FDA, when it comes to new or novel therapies, they set up a, um, a panel of experts because it is new. So in this case, because it was going to be used with cancer patients, they set up an oncology committee of 10 people, 10 experts, to give them advice on certain areas they see of concern. And two days before that meeting, they actually released the notes to that meeting 
And the notes that they released were extremely bearish. They were questioning the efficacy of Remistem Cell L and they were questioning the manufacturing part. And as soon as the market got hold of those notes, there was a massive sell-off in the shares. I held on to the shares because I thought this was an advisory uh, committee um, and the shares actually fell 31% on the 11th of August. So the next few nights I didn't sleep very much and I woke up to the (laughs) oncology advisory committee and they were in favour of the drug nine to one. So nine people were in favour and only one opposed. So a couple of days later, the share price was up 10% one day and then 39% another day and then up another 10% the following week. So we had a good, we had a good August in the end. But that comes up for a final decision by the 30th of September, so a major milestone. My point in this huge story is that with biotech companies, they go through phase one, phase two, phase three trials, and they're very expensive. They just eat up capital. They're constantly doing capital raisings. But when they get to phase three and then to approval and potential commercialization, that to me is a different stage of company to a company going through phase one, phase two, phase three, and being really capital intensive and sucking in capital. So Mesa last I feel like is exciting because it's moving from being capital intensive to hopefully offering a return on capital over the next few years. So that's why I like Mesoblast. It's got a number of catalysts. So not only the acute graft versus host for children, but also using it um, in COVID-19 when the body tends to inflame up and affect other organs and also the lower back pain and heart disease. It's good well. insight. The whole session on its own. Sorry for the long. <laughs> no, no, no. I get really excited when I talk about my stocks. <laughs> I found that really great insight because I often struggle with when it comes to these biotech companies to know when to think about entering the stocks, especially if they come out and say, oh, we're, you know, we think we're going to play in this space and develop a drug that no one's seen before. And then the stock shoots up and then they have to go through all these phases of trials, as you've just spoken about. It does make it hard knowing when is the right time to enter that's going to be less speculative and more based on sort of what is to come in the future or not. And that's a great point, Bryce, because I find that I, I I can avoid making a lot of losses by not getting sucked into stories mm. and trying mm. to keep a clear mind on what, you know, revenue growth is going to look like and commercialisation because there's lots of great stories on the share market and within individual companies but making money and growth is a totally different ballgame. So, Julia, you mentioned the second stock that you uh, was your biggest position was Charter Hall, the whale rate, uh, yes. which from memory owns a lot of very high quality real estate with long-term tenants. So that probably is a key piece of information for people who are surprised that you'd be holding real estate investment trust during, you know, the (laughs) pandemic that we're living through. (laughs) If you can talk us through that one as well. And um, maybe also for people who are interested in the REIT space, but are struggling to sort of understand what REITs will be resilient during this time and what may not be so resilient, what was some of the work you did to make yourself comfortable with this particular one? Sure. So when it comes to a real estate investment trust, it's actually easy for a lot of people to understand because Australians love property and essentially you're talking about a property investment. So when it comes to a portfolio of properties, there's usually two ways you can make money. One, the price of the property goes up, so a capital return, 
or two, you get rent from the property, so an income return. So when you're looking at a company like Charterhall Wales or any property trust, the two key questions you ask yourself is, one, what's the rent like? And two, well, is the property price going to go up? And that's basically it. Some property companies, there's a, a few other components, like they have a funds management side of the business. But generally, the two key factors behind a property investment are capital growth and income. When you, it comes to the property sector during COVID-19, obviously, the property sector has been hit hard because a lot of property owners aren't collecting rents. So whether that's in residential property or whether that's in retail property, the same type of thing is happening. And of course, if you're not collecting rents and you're likely to get less rent in the future, then the, the price of your asset or the price of your property usually goes down as well. So the property sector at the moment, the outlook's not good. You're getting less rent. The outlook for renegotiating rent is not good because rents are falling. And as a consequence, you're also seeing the actual value of the property decreasing as well. And that's probably the worst in the retail space. So things like shops, shopping centres, shop landlords are doing it pretty tough at the moment because of lockdowns. So my preference in terms of property is industrial property, which is more resilient. We're doing a lot more online shopping, so we need to store that and we need logistics uh, for that and warehouses. So I, I like industrial property first. And then probably office property next, even though the outlook's still relatively soft and I question what our working life is going to look like um, when we come out of COVID-19, whether we will be going back to offices or we'll, whether we'll need less office space. And then last in line is retail, so shopping centres and things like that. So with Chattelhall Wales, I liked it because... Um, Generally, the tenancy for properties, when you enter into a rental contract, they're about four or five years long. The average weighted tenancy for Charterhall Wales is about 14 years, which means it has very stable rental income. And then the other side of things is that they hold quite unusual assets. They hold things like the Telstra Exchange Towers, Coles Distribution Centres. They've just bought a portfolio of BP petrol stations, which they then rent back to BP. So very stable income as well. Like the quality of tenants is very high and it's likely that those tenants are going to keep on paying rent. So they've managed to collect rent. There's a high yield on it. So 7% on the price that we bought them at, 7% yield, which is paid quarterly. And also the revaluation of the assets actually went up. From memory, it went up by $92 million. So the value of their property went up by $92 million in the last financial year. So that's why I like Charterhall Wales. And that's how I evaluate real estate investments. If someone asks me about, for example, rural funds, RFF, which is another read, and asks me, well, what do you think of this? I'm usually trying to get an idea of what it will look like in terms of collecting rents and also the capital appreciation side of things, so the value of the property. And I know we're coming out of drought, so I think that, um, you know, agricultural assets are going to go up in value because, you know, they're going to be more productive. So the capital component looks good. And then if you have a look at, I guess, the income component, well, you know, pretty stable tenants there as well. So a yield of about 4.7% on rural funds. We don't own that one. But just to give you an example of how I evaluate property investments, capital side and the income side. Awesome. So, Julia, we've revived the Equity Mates hypothetical portfolio. 
which we started way back when for you know four years ago or whatever just oh, as a, wow. <laughs> yeah, took it took it offline and uh we've we've got it back out and it's now forming a, a part of our show and we did buy Afterpay at two dollars though in 2017 so <laughs> yeah. we we're pretty happy with the performance <laughs> so this is just the, <laughs> the back of Afterpay's ride yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah the community didn't want us to continue the Afterpay run so we've actually liquidated the whole thing and we're starting again but anyway oh, um <laughs> Well, that yeah, on paper and anyway. How had it but been um, how had it been performing? Yes, I mean, Afterpay obviously was just absolutely killing it. I think we had seven stocks on there, four of which were in the positive, three were in the negative. I think we had a was it AAC Ren, the Australian yeah, agricultural yeah. company that sort of bombed a bit. We also held uh, an inverse uh, <laughs> tech ETF. <laughs> <laughs> so that absolutely burnt us. Um, but anyway, it was all fun and games. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because now for all the guests that we speak to, we've got a expert watch list that we get a stock to add to the watch list from from the guests that we have on the show. So I'm assuming uh, if we were to put one on, on behalf of you, Julia, it would be Mesoblast or Charter Hall. Or is there another one that you'd like to specifically throw into the equity mates hypothetical so is, it, is it as of today's share price well we don't actually necessarily buy it it's more of a this is what our experts are watching yeah okay um i'll put miso blast in because that has a number of catalysts um and if you're just tracking the share price you probably won't capture the yield of um chatter hall which is a large component of the return Nice one. And Julia, while we're uh, hitting you up for questions without notice. Uh, <laughs> That's unusual. <laughs> another thing that we uh, we like to do at the start of every year is make bold predictions. Bryce predicted that CSL would be the largest company traded on the ASX by the end of the year. So far is, is looking good for. I predicted would have a $2 trillion company and uh, Apple have done me very well there. With COVID, obviously, the majority of our bold predictions are now out the window. And so we're getting some more from our guests and we're making some more ourselves. So as we get towards the end of the interview today, we're wondering, do you have any bold predictions for the rest of 2020 or into 2021? I'm going to pick an area where I'm not an expert. So just disclaimer there. But that's, that's I think generally our, that's generally prices, our strategy as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. House prices might be up next year, not down. Okay. okay. Interesting. Any reason why you think that? Uh, well, the, there are um, people that are um, doing it tough and they've been offered support by the banks, but that's actually less than really what the market was anticipating. So it's a small portion of loans here in Australia, we're still yet to see JobKeeper and JobSeeker roll off, so the impacts of that. But given the amount of support coming through and very, very low interest rates that are likely to stay low for at least the next three years, I think that property could do well. And in fact, property has started doing well in the US. House prices have been rising there. Are you bold enough to put a figure on what percentage we're looking at? It's not going to be a big percentage. <laughs> given that the market expects property prices to fall next year, I thought that was going against the trend. <laughs> no, fair enough. Bryce is going to be very happy to hear that because he's actually looking for a place in Volcluse at the moment. So he's <laughs> unbelievably not true. Yeah, with all my after, uh, yeah, with my after favorites. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
But the, the result of like having a view on something like property being less negative than what the market thinks or positive rather than negative is also the implications of that. What does that mean for the banks? You know, is that going to mean that bank share prices might bounce back a lot more quickly and actually have a positive return over the next six to 12 months rather than a negative one? Have we reached peak negative, negative sentiment for the bank's these are the things I dream of at night. <laughs> if you could only be <laughs> <feed> my brain. <laughs> I guess just to close it out, Julia, um, you know, we've covered a fair bit tonight. It's been awesome to catch up with you. So so thanks for your time. But I found it fascinating. At the start of this conversation, you said, you know, you can't believe that people would almost still be sitting in so much cash at this stage, given what is going on in the market. What would sort of be your advice to someone who is just starting their journey now and at that point with a bit of cash, but still uncertain of what's going on in the markets? Yeah, the share market is all about pricing in the future. And I guess the uncertainty comes because there's a huge disconnect between the share market's performance versus what's happening in the underlying economy. But the share market prices in the future. So I always try and think of it as having a time machine going into the future, two years in time or five years in time, and then looking back and wondering what I should have done. So not basing my decisions off what's happening today, but what I think is going to happen in 12 months' time. Love it. Great way to finish. And I hope some uh, of our listeners were able to take something from that and uh, get started on their investing journey if they are feeling a bit reluctant to do so. So, Julia, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you uh, back on Equity Mates, and we look forward to continuing our Mastermind series throughout 2020. And big thank you. I love chatting to you guys and congratulations on all the success with Equity Mates. It's been great being part of the journey and watching it grow. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Julia. Speak soon. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. 
Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money.